0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali, and I'm joined by Boris Becker. No, just kidding. It's my good old friend, Mert Artunga, (laughs) who has been talking about Becker and Lendl, and we'll get to it lately uh, in the podcast. But uh, it's been a while since we have been here. I think last episode was almost 10 days ago, and we promised to be more regular. Mert, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Saqib. Always a pleasure to be with you.
0: This is rare. We've done a few podcasts, but I don't think we have done one this early. How's the morning coffee?
1: Oh, it tastes better than ever. It it seems like the earlier, the better.
0: Okay. And how's my voice? I have a new microphone. I just want to announce publicly. Saki, you,
1: yeah, you come in very clearly. It's, you know, that is something you should announce publicly. I agree. Okay, Especially yeah. a, a podcast extraordinaire like
0: you. All right. I mean, you you always boosted my stock. You know, whenever I'm low in confidence, <laughs> I get murdered on the WhatsApp. But uh Uh, We've got plenty of tennis to talk about. Uh, One, obviously, we haven't been talking too much on this forum. And secondly, there's a lot going on in terms of uh, tennis Twitter discussion and something uh, we don't digress usually on this podcast. But uh, Mert, you put out a tweet, uh, I think, a few days ago uh, regarding um, people's lack of understanding or maybe uh, not fully grasping what uh, international travel has been like for tennis players. And we do respect the bubble restrictions in each country's, you know, protocols, because, you know, humanity is bigger than tennis. This pandemic is much bigger than tennis. But then when we all live in the tennis universe, you know, that's a disclaimer that's kind of given. So I know you were not happy how some people show this lack of understanding. If I don't know if I'm even capturing the the context of your tweet, right. But why don't you take the floor and just, you know, let it go.
1: Okay. So can, for, for example, when, um, you know, th- there's this, General trend that I've noticed, and it started in the Australian Open. Unfortunately, also fueled by a small group of people in the media too, that tennis players are privileged, or that they're entitled, or or that they're brats, spoiled brats, and uh, and this gets um, this gets brought up again and again, every time a player expresses dissatisfaction with with uh, something with the way things are or how much trouble they're having uh, with various ins and outs of the tour, which is the the same type of dissatisfaction that that anybody may be expressing due to the conditions brought on by the pandemic, okay? But for some reason, when when a tennis player puts that into words, he gets labeled uh, privileged or entitled. And this gets exacerbated when some players once in a while we'll go out and i don't know and 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 you know i'd like to think that they do this genuinely uh and not to get brownie points although i have my although i have my doubts they will go out and say how lucky they are uh, not many just a few but they will do this uh, and they will go out and say how lucky they are that uh, that they can still play tennis etc for example a player that I personally like a lot: uh, the, the, his work ethic, his uh, the, the, his tennis, and in general, you know, I'm I'm a fan of many many players. But uh, Rublev is one is one of the players that that I really enjoy watching and following. He said something. It, it was a Russian article, so it was a translation. Quote: uh, Maybe some something, something got lost in the trans- translation. I'm not sure, but uh, apparently, he said something to the effect of. I'm happy we can play at all. And he keeps using we, okay? I'm happy we can play at all. Five months without tournaments was hard. Some people, he said something like, some people lost their jobs. Uh, We, tennis players, we are still able to travel. We play tournaments despite closed borders. We are very lucky, Okay, and this you know this got all kinds of praise from people, and unfortunately, it was used also. And this is a trend. This is another dangerous trend. Whenever a player says something like that, it's used to attack other players, as if that player was in the minority, and and that that all other players were were you know spoiled entitled brats who kept on uh, complaining about everything. Okay. Are there some entitled uh, uh, brats in the tour, or are there some who see them? You know who who act privileged? Sure, just like in any other sector. Okay, there are always a few outliers like that, but tennis players in general are not privileged. And and uh, you know what Rublev said first of all, is is inaccurate. You know he's he's saying some lost their job week, and he makes it sound as if tennis players have not lost their jobs. You know, where Rublev can speak, he's a top 20, top 30 player who wins tournaments, makes a lot of money, okay? And he gets, uh, he does get certain privileges that other players don't get when he goes to tournaments, all right? But when he says, we are very lucky, we uh, tennis players uh, can travel, these are not true. A player ranked in the 200s, 300s, 400s does not live in the reality that Rublev is describing here. There are hundreds of players who have lost their jobs in the lower ranks. Then, no, it's not true that they can all travel. I am in touch with several players who, who are in the ITF. They can't travel to every single country they have to go through they have to go they have to jump through incredible amounts of hoops to even travel to countries that they can travel to and once they get there it's not guaranteed money they have yep. to win the rounds they have to make money you know uh, i talked to for example Pemra Osgan, and you know what she was playing tournaments itf tournaments in france she you know it's, it's not even that that uh, it's not even that easy to travel within a country some tournament director says some tournament directors say and I, I gave her example, but this is for many players. Some tournament directors say, don't come. You can't come here. Whereas actually other players from the same country end up going there. And so, and then some tournament directors won't get back to the players when they want information. They get different information from the tournament director versus the embassy. And, they, and, and sometimes it takes like days and days and days to, to organize and sometimes they can't. There's a player... Uh, and I I'll, I'll give you two or three different examples without giving names but there's a player who wanted to go from one country to another to to um, uh, for just just even for practice purposes okay to prepare with with another group of players and and she couldn't do it you know she had to she she had to travel through three different countries and rent a car and go across the border that way, and use the car for almost ten hours before finally getting to our destination. Instead of be, uh, taking the plane, because the plane company said, "No, you can't fly because of the country you're from. You can't fly with us." And and then, you know there are other players who, uh, who 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 for whom tournaments require lab results, not just any result, but lab results, and they have to during their travel while they're playing a tournament. They have to find a lab in the country that they're in, that they're not familiar with. And some labs are closed on the weekend, so they can't get a result. And therefore, they can't travel. There is a horrible reality out there. You know, the struggle is real. So when, uh, when, you know, when Rublev says, we are very lucky, we tennis players can travel despite closed doors. Some people lost their jobs. Others took pay cuts. Well, guess what? Rublev is describing tennis players too. So I don't yeah. know where he's coming from with this we are very lucky thing. And you know I'm, I know this is going to be unpopular because people took that, took that and ran. I don't know if Rublev is being naive or if he's just, you know, I'm I'm assuming he's just thinking, uh, he, you know, the top 20 players or players of his caliber or people who, who make money like he is. But but that's not how he words it. And uh, maybe something got lost in the translation. I don't know. But the way he words it is very dangerous. He, he says, specifically, we tennis players, we are very lucky. And if you remember, Sakib, this a similar thing happened in Australian Open. I believe it was, and I hope I'm not wrong, but I believe it was Kerber and Azarenka, who, while some players were, were expressing or showing reaction, to be in quarantine for 14 days, hard quarantine. They came out and said, uh, "No, we are very lucky. We're very happy to be here." You know, and 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 you know, a same type of thing. You know, in other words, undermining. You know, the the realities that that, that players uh, face too. And 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 I'm again, I'm not sure if if these players are doing it for brownie points, for marketing purposes, or to 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 get to, to get to earn brownie points or are they just simply naive but in their case after they lost early in the tournament all of a sudden they changed tune two weeks later three weeks later they they both complained about not being able to prepare properly for the for uh, for the tournament that how it affects their play their play so you see uh, w- which one is it you know I, I thought they said they were super lucky and now they're complaining about not being able to prepare because of the quarantine the way that they they should have prepared. You know, and that's exactly what the other players were showing reaction to when they went the other way. And, yeah. and you know, they were praised at, at the time too. I'm just against this whole idea of, uh, of tennis players being portrayed as privileged. They're not privileged. They're not entitled. I would argue that even players in Rublev's caliber do not deserve to be called privileged or entitled. These players have have worked hard to get where they are. And also, uh, sake, people who work in international companies, global companies, and you get to travel through them, for example, okay? they When they travel, say a, a marketing director of some region who, who travels to a certain region as, as part of his, his or her job. You know what? They, when they travel to that region, their salaries are guaranteed. They have a year-long contract, two-year-long contract. They're, they're, they have monthly salary. So when they take the trip and they come back, they know at the end of the month they're getting their salary. Tennis players don't. Tennis players have to win matches one day once they get there to earn more money. I'm not sure, you know, I'll, I'm open to suggestions, but uh, this whole idea that tennis players are privileged and, entire, and, and act entitled, no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely against that. I mean, I went on and on a little bit, but... I no,
0: went, that's quite powerful. I and, to cover
1: and, and... Uh, all, all grounds. There's a real struggle for hundreds of players from in the, ranked in the 200s, 300s, 400s, 500s. Many have lost their jobs. Let's put this illusion aside that tennis players get to do something that other play, people don't get to do, that they do it comfortably, and that they should be lucky and they should shut up and never express any kind of dissatisfaction over the over the daily ins and outs of their of their logistics
0: no and I, and I think there's a quite a ground covered there and i would i don't want to even speak out of turn even though i follow tennis a lot but my expertise are definitely not uh, there to do this kind of commentary but i think you've definitely opened uh, my eyes because honestly when we talked about this uh, in messaging I admitted that I did not see too much wrong with Rublev's uh, initial, you know, that uh, the translation of his uh, press conference that came out through, I think, a Russian website, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the moment you said, and, you know, like the light bulb just went on to say, I know you're right. I mean, he's speaking from his vantage point. I gave him the benefit of being young and uh, like myself, like yourself, English is not his first language. And, uh, and, uh, and but again, when the thing is coming through translation and, you know, it, it's, it definitely left a lot to be desired. So I'll let the listeners tune in and, you know, give their uh, views and, you know, uh, you sharing stories of players that who have struggled. And there was a podcast done by Karen Health and Matt Semek. I sat on it last year when the pandemic kicked, kicked on and Sofia Shapatova of Georgia was on her with the coach and the struggle was immensely real and you know the story and details she provided so you're right tennis is very international we only talk about not we but as fans we only talk about the big tournaments the main year and this main year is also like in survival mode you know like a lot of tournaments are happening because they are in certain countries and there's always travel restrictions who can go there and and not. And even this Miami open was a reason that a lot of players didn't want to come to us. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, again, uh, I, I can digress here quickly, but I think I want your powerful uh, message to stay as a kicking point for this podcast, kicking off point, And hopefully, you know, there'll be some responses because uh, of what you said.
1: And some, you know, some, and some players make, uh, make the, you know schedule their weeks according to that you know they 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 sign up for a for a tournament for an i t f tournament at a certain country, and then they get a message an email five or six days before that they cannot come because their country just passed the passed the rule that they have to be quarantined or i don't know they may maybe maybe they need this or that that's the that that comes from the tournament and then when the player contacts the embassy, the embassy says no, no, it's not true, you can go, but you have to do this and this and this. And when the player contacts the tournament back and says, "You know what? What is the uh, situation that I got?" that they can't get an answer. Like that, it sometimes mm-hmm. it takes three, four days to get an answer. You know, these are just small, granular details. But yeah, just like you said,
0: no, even even uh, the financial, I mean, uh, aspect of a player's life. I mean, exactly. My limited exposure of few tournaments that I've been fortunate enough to go and talk to players. I don't want to name anyone here, but I met someone in Newport who had lost. Uh, his opening match a few years ago and stayed the entire week because he was rooming with another player. And he openly told me, you know, that there's a reason, you know, he's practicing here and he has a room that he's sharing with someone. And that when other that player B was leaving for Europe, this guy would take the cab ride with them to the airport in Boston. And then from Boston, he'll probably take a bus to go to upstate New York. So struggle is really, you know, there you can see, and this is during a perfectly normal year, but this is a guy who's barely trying to play two fifties and challenger. So you can just, you know, magnify with that information, what financial struggle it is to play competitive tennis. And then there was a choice that person has to make either go to Binghamton or Chicago. You know, he told me, and then Binghamton is upstate New York and he can take a bus and you know, like, this is real. (laughs) exactly Uh, when is the last time Andy Murray got on a bus I mean you know so the world is definitely not real and we all know that and multiply the severity and the complexities of uh, the financial situation of tennis players trying to make a living on a weekly contractual basis uh, with the pandemic
1: yeah exactly and then you know they've they've, there's many of them have already taken other jobs uh, to to just uh, you know to just make ends meet Uh, And and by the way, this is not, uh, you know, people might think that we're talking about just, you know, players ranked 300. No, even players ranked between 100 and 200 don't necessarily make money every every single week that they play. And so this is, and and also it is not true that tennis players can travel and play all the tournaments despite closed borders. There are uh, a ton of WTA players who couldn't play the WTA tournaments in Australia. Because they were just limited to the players who played the Australian Open. So where is this reality that uh, you know? Even, and I'm talking even you know players ranked higher. Uh, I don't know about this reality where supposedly that Ruble is talking about. Supposedly, where tennis players can travel, play tournaments despite closed borders, and they're so lucky, and they don't lose their job, and they don't take pay cuts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, I'm 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 not sure that the. But again, you know. I keep using uh, Rublev's, um, uh, quote, but, uh, you know, Rublev is a player that I like very much and I'm not sure, you know, there may be some context may be lost in the translation. I don't know. But, uh, but if he said it as clear as it is on the translation where we tennis players can travel play tournaments, we are very lucky. I'm sorry. It's just not true. And, and it's, and it's actually not a very good tweet, quite frankly, it's yeah. undermining the other players and, uh, yeah. But um, uh, well, either he's naive or he's trying to get brownie points or he just, you know, he just meant it in the context of of uh, the small handful of players who are in his position in the rankings.
0: Absolutely. And Mark, don't worry, you don't have to put disclaimer that you like Ruble because I think you've built yeah. a brand of credibility on Twitter. And uh, yeah, and those fans who just get offended at the smallest thing, uh, smallest comment about their favorite player, uh, you know, again, that's a very different conversation. You You can't please them all. So... <laughs> Let's let's talk about certain tennis players that who are you know in action in Miami and who've had a decent year, and in no particular order. Let's start with Garbini Muguruza. I mean, I think we haven't talked about this about her in a long time, or maybe we haven't. Maybe me and Matt have done this in the past. So with the microphone on, I mean, uh, what do you make of her year? And I mean, what kind of a player is she? I mean, is she? I know rankings do tell a story. She's ranked twelfth in Miami, the twelfth seed. Uh, her tennis has been of the pretty high caliber. Uh, you know these last year and a half of the pandemic stuff so uh, where is Muguruza at according to you and you know what, what do you expect when you see her perform like the like she won a very competitive match against uh, Kalinskaya uh, yesterday
1: yes yeah, well Muguruza first of all is uh, is having probably um, the best year of, uh, of anyone out there, you know, and her results show it that I, I actually said something that probably just about everyone who's listened to the podcast knows uh, she's very much in form. And, uh, you know, when she won a tournament just a couple of weeks ago, she just won a tournament a 1000 event. And apparently that was her first time in a long time. But uh, as but as far as I'm concerned, it was I was not surprised. Uh, I, I expect her I expect her to win tournaments this year because of her form. She's an excellent, she's an excellent uh, player since, uh, I, you know, she went, she went through a pretty big coaching change uh, in, uh, a couple of years back and uh, started with Conchita Martinez. And uh, the consistency, okay, the, uh, she was already a consistent player, sake, but the consistency that she's acquired since starting to work with Conchita Martinez in building points, in other words, I'm not talking about consistency just from the baseline. Muguruza is not your classic send the ball back many times type of baseline player anyway, okay? Uh, she, you know, she, she's, uh, she's one to, to possibly play inside the baseline if she can and take charge of the point. But the consistency she's found in building the point, whether that's putting the ball away from the baseline, whether that's hitting a good shot and moving it and catching a ball in the air, and hitting a swing volley or just simply coming up to the net and putting the ball away at the net or even using drop shots to uh, to to put the ball away the consistency that she found in building ways to, or you know building ways to find uh the, a, a certain type of pattern to to win a point is tremendous and she when and you need a, you need confidence to be able to pull that kind of uh, that kind of stuff you, you don't you can be on a roll Sakib and hit winners one after the other, but in order to to build points and through certain patterns and win them again and again consistently, you know you you have to have confidence. And obviously Muguruza is playing with a lot of confidence. And I'm especially impressed with the fact that she lost a really heartbreaking match against Osaka at the Australian Open with two, two, from two match points up. I'm especially impressed with the with how quickly she put that behind and she's right back on top form and playing very very well. And uh she, she she's a in my opinion her tennis is a pleasure to watch when uh, this year so far, you know if 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 a tennis fan has not come around to watching any tennis this year, well okay first of all I don't know if we can call that person a tennis fan at that point, <laughs> but but if they have not and they and they ask me who should I watch, you know, somebody in form, I would, you know, she would be one of the first persons that I would mention.
0: No, I think very well said again. And I also, uh, again, uh, there's not a big sample size, but I've seen her venture the net, you know, following her big ground strokes. How do you see her feel at net? I mean, is that someone you look for when you you know write about her matches? Uh, talk about that.
1: Yes. It's part of her. Well, it's, it, it, it needs to be part of our game because again, she likes to take take charge of points. She accelerates down the line very well. First of all, she, she's hit a bunch against Kalinskaya uh, yesterday. I don't know if people got to watch it, but uh, she, you know she can accelerate down the line. Despite being a tall player, she can also bend down and hit backhand down the lines very well on low balls. And what she does now is some of those down the line accelerations that catches the opponent off guard she follows them up to the net, not like an approach shot, perhaps, but she hits the shot and sees that the opponent is, is off, uh, off balance and is, they're going to have to stretch and probably float that ball back. Then she'll step inside the court and move up to the net and and move in. And again, finish with a swing volley or a regular volley, but she has good, she has good hands at the net. That's the point. That's actually the point that I was trying to make earlier that I didn't get around to making. I guess I, it just kind of slipped my mind. So I'm glad you reminded me, but you know, I think since Conch- since the switch to Conchita Martinez, that's another aspect of our game that has improved.
0: Uh, with her best tennis again, uh, and, and, you know, we've talked about tennis IQs with you in the past. Uh, where would you rate the best of Magruta, you know, with Osaka, you know, making her you know, her claim to the hardcoats, as Matt has said, you know, that's the Osaka empire. And uh, with other good players that uh, the Ash party has returned this week. So uh, healthy and... Driven Mugaruta playing to her absolute best, where's she ranked in the pecking order like to win a major this year?
1: Yes, um, of okay. course, it's a
0: generic question, but you know uh, we don't yeah. want to talk about specific match, but given the health of the tour and her performance, uh, keep that in mind, yeah
1: I think if she's at her best. Uh, she has a chance to win, but uh, you know when we say a player is at our best, I think we have to be fair to other players and and assume that they 're also at their best. and if everybody puts out their best if you, let me ta- let me uh, frame your question this way: if she 's at her best and everybody else is not, yes, she has a good chance to win the tournament. But if every every player currently active puts out their best. I would not put Muguruza at, at the top. I would put her top 5, who have a chance to win the win the win a major. I mean, you know, a player like Petra Kvitova at her best blows people off the court. You know, does 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 the, does the opponent even get a chance to uh, hit the hit the next shot. You know, when you put a player like Naomi Osaka at her best is very hard to beat. Serena Williams at her best is incredibly hard to beat. So is Muguruza. But, uh, you know, when we say at her best, can she win a major? Yes, she can win a major at her best. But if every player shows up at their best, I would not put Muguruza at the top of my list.
0: Now, it makes sense. I think that you did a good job there to like uh, further clarify what I was trying to ask. Yeah. Uh, so another player who's back uh, this week is, uh, I mean, not back in tennis, but back outside Australia is Ashley Barty. So did you get a chance to see anything... From her, uh...
1: yes, yes, and 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 I like what I see. You know, we have to keep in mind how long she's been off the court, and this is why when we're watching players like Bianca Andreescu and Ashley Ash Barty, we have to be very patient. We cannot expect what we last remember them putting out, and uh, and 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 you know, be and judge what we're seeing today based on that. What we should look for. Is are they taking steps forward to getting to where they were back then? And I think uh, both Andresco and the uh, Ash party, especially Ash party, are on their way back to uh, you know back to where they were before, barring injury. You know, I mean, of course, if they get injured again at some point from this point forward, and uh, and, and the, you know th- that sets them back. That's another thing. But I think they're both on their way. I, I'm a big fan of Ash party, her game. Uh, I, I, you know, I even said something to the effect of a month or two ago that you know my my ideal dream for WTA is to have a uh, group of four or five players, and Ash Barty was one of them who built a rivalry for years to come in the latter stages of majors. I think you know lasting rivalries among top two or three names uh, bring 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 uh, awareness to the sport, popularity, recognition. And uh, Barty is one of those players that I'd like to see up there because of her, because of her style. She's very, uh, she's a very nice, she's very nice to watch, uh, you know, when she's playing well. And I think she's starting to uh, play well. And uh, it'll be a pleasure to see if she can get back to her top level. But yes, I am happy with, uh, with what I've seen from her.
0: No, I think that's a brilliant point. Rivalry always what's, always gets understated is rivalry also creates many rivalries of fans, of course, you know, not extreme fans, uh, which again, you know, I'm not here to condemn. I mean, you know, passion is extreme. But when I was growing up, you know, me and my friends were split into the becker Edberg camp, which I've talked about, I think, 100 times on this podcast, and mm-hmm. that was a healthy rivalry, you know with a limited dose of tennis, we used to look forward to Wimbledon. And, and that's where Becker played Edberg a lot. And, you know, there was a Becker camp and then there was an Edberg camp. Sure, and, you know, uh,
1: and and, and, the, and it's through through repeated matches at the latter stages of big stage tournaments that you build fan recognition and fan awareness. And just like you said, Sakib you know, you gave an, you gave the example of Becker and Ed, Edberg, you know, so you can give the same example with Navratlova Everett, Borg yep. Connors, Borg McEnroe, uh, Celis... Um, Graph, as graph. Sampras Agassi. You know, the, when, when these players play each other, I you know, don't get me wrong. I like uh, the variety. I like seeing a ton of new players with potential. But what I would like to see is a group of three or four or five nucleus of top level, top, top players, yep. elite players, playing each other again and again in the semis and finals. of of big stage tournaments to where fans begin to see them and recognize them and start taking sides. And that's how you get casual fans to start getting glued to the TV week after week.
0: Yeah, like those three guys, I'm forgetting their names, right? They have done this for the last 17, 18 years, right? So Yeah,
1: that's right. I, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember them either. Are they, are they from, I think they're from Europe, all of them. I'm not yeah, sure. I
0: think so. <laughs> all right, so let's let's talk about the ATP. Again, uh, we don't want to talk about the specific matchups because by the time some people will listen to this podcast, that player would have lost. But there's a lot of momentum for certain Russians coming in this. So let's start with, you know, talk of the town, Aslan Karatsev. There's, all, there's, there's every day, interestingly, a new layer, new fact uncovered about this guy i mean he's, uh, i mean is he for real i think that's an old news
1: uh, yeah. now
0: people are talking about year end finals and his his you know ability to you know just stay relevant in these matches and win these matches like with ease like he belongs in the stage someone who was playing pretty much without crowds may have helped him because some crowds are missing but uh, you know talk about his uh, title run in dubai we were supposed to talk about that last week but there's a gap now but he is still active in this draw so what are some of the observations that have got solidified since we last spoke about him with Matt, you and I, post-Australian Open?
1: Yeah, you know, the, the funny thing about, uh, about Karatsev, uh, Sakib, is that, yes, it's true that, uh, that he, was, he was already doing well. In other words, in the, in, the, in the challenger circuit, he was starting to get some results. And the, even leading up to his, uh, to his big stage arrival, so to speak, he was getting some results, and I think a lot of play, a lot of people who follow tennis, you know, week in and week out, or follow challengers, lower level circuits, probably could have guessed that he was going to make a big jump. But I don't, I don't even think those people, or people who follow him closely, or even Karate fans themselves, okay, I don't think any of them expected this kind of jump. But not only this kind of jump, but the but the ability to stay up there once you get to once you get to that jump uh, f- for example we've had players before have breakout tournaments okay they have uh, uh, in a major or in a 1000 event you see a player that you haven't heard before or a casual ten- tennis fan may not have heard before all of a sudden have a big breakout to where oh my gosh who is this guy wow what a player etc but then they're unable to sustain that level, you know, for, 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 for the next, say five months, six months, it happened at every, um, era and it happens today too, you know, no need to give examples, but there are some even today from active players who who, who have gone through this, what he's, what he's doing. That's a lot better is he's able to sustain right. He reached the semifinals of the Australian open. And here we are, he, you know, he wins a title, you know, and, and, uh, and once again, he's, um, uh, in the, he's in the tournament in the, in the Miami right now. And I'm trying to see who uh, who he plays next. I'm drawing a blank right now. But he, he's playing Sebastian Corda, which is, by the way, uh, an excellent matchup. I'm, I cannot wait to see that match. But anyway, so he's in this tournament. He's advancing here too. So he's sustaining. He's sustaining his level. So it's not that far a stretch to now talk about him possibly becoming a top 20 player, et cetera, if he can avoid injury, right? If he doesn't get injured and he continues his current form, it's not that far of a stretch to, to expect him to finish the year uh, ranked high, or even maybe for the year end tournament, because he's been able to sustain. And uh, so,
0: so, so let me just come in here. I think you're onto something very important. So, A lot of time, even I get asked through my friends, and you know, not asked, I mean, I should get off the pedestal (laughs) uh, in discussions that uh, why so and so, you know, played so well uh, at the main draw and now is struggling in challenges. So, how big is confidence? Because that's something a stat sheet won't tell you. Uh, When Akarasov was winning all these matches, the tennis purist, the challenger crowd was following his progress. The moment he made the Grand Slam semis, the big, uh, you know, the big wigs of tennis world started discussing him. But there's definitely an element of confidence there, right? Because he could all obviously play tennis. Like most guys, like he was considering quitting. I think Medvedev said that. And now he's back here and we're talking a potential top eight finish. So talk about confidence and, you know, through your prism, you've traveled with some players and you know, like how they're trying to make uh, the main tour on WTA side as as well, if you want to use an example, but uh, if you want to score, you know, if you want to highlight what confidence means, because tennis was always there, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say.
1: Yes, no, the, the, the context in which you, you, you presented it, confidence matters uh, a lot. When, when you're playing the, in lower level tournament, Saqib, you have this uh, motivation to show everyone that you belong to the higher level, okay? And you, and you base your practices, your tournaments with that drive, uh, well, with that drive being one of the factors that motivates you to do well, okay? You want to show that you belong. When you finally do achieve that, you know when you finally have that breakout tournament, and all of a sudden now everybody knows who you are, and you ha- now you have a target on your back. You can either you, you know you can you, there are a few viewpoints that you can adopt. One of them being, finally here we are. Everyone sees me. This is me. I'm where I belong. Let's do this. Let's get even better. Let's work even harder. Okay, which is a good which is a good attitude to take. Good, uh, good, good. uh, You know, frame of mind to have, or you can say, okay, uh, I've proven that I can get here, uh, that uh, that 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 I that I belong to this place. But my gosh, what if I don't do well now here? Because everybody, everybody's now watching me. Before they were not watching me. Now everyone's watching me. I got to show them that this was not a fluke, and I got to do the same. And that can get tricky. You know, that frame of mind can get tricky. But. You, you can't help it. I mean you see some people start thinking that way. So these are the different frame of minds that you can adopt or you can adopt unconsciously, subconsciously, okay without really realizing it. And uh, so confidence is good if you if you know if you see your accomplishment in one tournament as something that you should have done anyway as a step in your way to the top and you get motivated to do even better, that's, that's good confidence. But just doing well in one tournament alone doesn't necessarily give you confidence, but it gives you awareness that you have the capacity, you have the potential to, to, to get there. But to stay there, you need, the, you, you need the confidence. And confidence is built through, you know, follow-up performances to that tournament. And that's why you can have sometimes players who win a major or who win a 1000 event. And then for two years, three years, they cannot win anything. That's because they were not able to uh, get that sustained confidence. They did well. They brought awareness. They were happy about it, but they could not convince themselves that they're, uh, they they necessarily belong there.
0: Okay. No, this, uh, this uh, quite a few things to grasp there. So, um, Let's stay on another Russian player. Uh, we, we talked a lot about Rublev, so let's bring him back now for his tennis. Uh, pretty impressive year, uh, you know. Had an odd week in Doha where he, you know, had I think two or three uh, walkovers and just played the semis. But overall, I think playing tennis at a very high high level. And uh, you and I have discussed him uh, on our on our DMs that how. His tennis is consistent. He's won a bunch of 500s. You know, he plays this aggressive brand of baseline tennis, and he hits the ball very hard. But at Grand Slams, in the last uh, in, in the four times he's made the quarterfinals, he has only won one set against Sitsipas. So we talked about Zverev in this sense, right, in a different way, that he was losing early in Grand Slams, and he was a, a single-week tournament player, like a best-of-three player. So where is that comparison for Andrei Rublev? you know, with his uh, immense record in the last year and a half, you know, he's won tournaments on different surfaces at the single week tournament level, but at grand slam he's progressed well, but he's uh, been pretty much, I don't want to say manhandled, but you know, if someone just looks at the score uh, his U S open quarters with Medvedev was very competitive for the first two sets, but then, you know, it's the same thing that happened in Australia. So it's a matchup thing or he still needs to get to that next level to making a competitive outing versus a top player uh, at a best of five level.
1: No, I think I think it's coming. It's it's coming. It, 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 uh, it's likely to happen in the next uh, in the very near future. Let's put it this way: I uh, he's he's improved some. You know, I've I've actually in our past podcast last year or two years ago, I remember when we talked about him, and you'll probably remember this too. You know, I I felt that despite as as much as I like Rublev as much as I'm a fan of his game that I felt like he was still not, he was still delaying a little bit um, uh, the improvement on certain aspects of his game or, or, or just in general, uh, you know, improving his all around court use. And, uh, but I, I think this year I'm seeing very encouraging signs of that, um, of that problem being taken care of. Uh, in other words, I'm really liking what I'm seeing this year. I I see him uh, attack a lot. I see him flatten out his forehand a little bit more. You know, as as great as his forehand was, it still had the uh, uh, a certain spin to it, and it still had a certain um, uh, effect impact on the ball that did not change much. It was just a really hard forehand that people had trouble getting to, but now he's uh, he's putting a little bit more variation on the amount of spin. And I've seen him flatten out, straightforward flatten out some high forehands, even some forehands where he hits that inside-out spin. In other words, down the line where the ball kind of curves to the outside on some high forehands. Rare, but he does it. So he, there's a lot of improvement to his game. Well, his backhand down the line has been underrated. But what I do like this year the most is his willingness to use all-court game. You know, in the Rotterdam tournament, for example, I saw a very interesting stat. Um, uh, he played, he beat Sitsipas in the semifinals, 6-3, 7-5, I believe, or 7-6, I'm not, I can't remember. But he beat him in straight sets. And in that match, he came to the net 22 times, winning 19 of those points. That's that's something that you would not have seen in the past years from Rublev. Coming to the net 22 times in two sets. And, and unsurprisingly to me, okay, this is not a surprise to me at all, that he won 19 out of those 22 points. That's how he, that's how much success he should have at the net with his game. You know, with as much pressure as he puts on his opponents, he's going to get a lot of floaters back. And, and and in the past, he used to stay back, let the ball bounce and go for the next shot. He would still maybe hit a winner and it would look great. And we would all clap it. But, the but, but, you know, his success rate at the net should be very good with it, with his game. And this is, you know, this is the Rublev that I'd like to see more. The, the, the Rublev that I saw in the semifinals against Tsitsipas in Rotterdam.
0: No, for, for, fair point. I mean, uh, he's, he's, he's a great follower. I mean, the way he's playing and you know, he gives you a lot to talk about every week. So let's wrap this up. We have 10 minutes left. By the way, Ernest Gulbis just won his first match in Marbella. This is breaking news. You know, this is the only podcast that'll cover that.
1: Oh, so Sake, that that, <laughs> that 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 deserves a you know. That's great. A mention, yeah, yes. you know, and
0: be Don Scott two and two, yeah. I don't know, last time, <laughs> last time when he won this convincingly. So anyway, so last ten minutes of this, I want to dedicate to two different players who are at two different stages. Uh, one, you know, we've talked about an established player like Ruble, who's you know heading to the top most echelon, and he's getting there in a hurry. Let's talk about someone you know, th- these stories always fascinate me. And we've been talking about him too, Martin Fuchovic. Mm-hmm. And um, his his form has been pretty impressive. You know, the match he played against Stan Mavrinka, then he played, I think, Rotterdam final against Rublev, then had a couple of mixed results. But he's still uh, active this week in Miami. So what is the potential of that kind of a guy? I don't know if you paid close attention. I mean, is he top 30 worthy? I mean, where he, where is his tennis at and, you know, is that a player that when you write for Murtov's desk, you know? Do you cover that kind of a match when he's playing?
1: Oh, sure, sure, sure. You know, footso is the kind of player that not many people will talk about, but that will just steadily keep improving. And 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 I even said this uh, in, either in a, in a social media message or maybe in a piece I can't remember. But he's that kind of player who uh, who will improve steadily and it will be so steady and so consistent and such small increments, increments increments of improvement that um that you won't even realize it all of a sudden you'll see him play and then you know a casual fan may see, may watch him play and then that same casual fan may see him play against again 8 months later they'll see his improved version they'll say oh oh great player but they won't really realize the difference between You know, now and eight months ago, that's because he he he's the kind of player who improves his overall performance. He doesn't all of a sudden, you know, improve his big serve or his I don't know his cross court backhand sharp angle or uh, or or a flat forehand winners. You know, it's not it's not like that. He he's that kind of guy who gets a little more consistent uh, every season who improves his serve every season, who puts a little bit more on his second serve variation uh, every three or four months, who has already solid fundamentals. So he starts using the court better. He starts. He already has drop shot in his repertoire, for example, but starts using it more as the years go by. And, there, and then shows the steady type of improvement. That's, that's who Futsovic is. And it, it, it also helps that uh, he's in great shape. You know, another player that I can think of. So to to get back to your original question, you know, does he have top 30 potential, top 20 potential? Sure, he can get there, but it'll be, you know, it'll be, you have to be patient if you're, uh, if you're a fruit service fan. He can get there. but It's not a guarantee, but he can. You know, a player that comes to my mind in the same vein is Rainer Schuttler. If you remember him from, uh, you know, many years ago, he for, I believe, for eight or nine years. His ranking kept improving at the end of the year, every single year, little by little, little by little, and he ended up reaching the finals of the Australian Open, uh, losing to Agassi, uh, that which you know, w- which was his top level, and I believe he cracked uh, you know top ten. And again, him, he, same thing with him, you know, he didn't have anything spectacular in his game, but just a really hard worker, physical specimen, uh, the, the slow, you know, slow but steady improvement in all areas of the game, year by year. And I enjoy watching Fuchshovich play. I like his game. So, you know, again, I'm a fan of his, uh, his um, strokes and, in general, him as a player, what he shows out there in terms of focus, concentration, and, uh, and work yeah. ethics.
0: No, again, I'll beg to differ. Again, I will be totally out of my depth. I think uh, what I see in him, he's hes basically model his game around Marat Safin. I think when he was playing in Australia, I started seeing the similarities, the uncanny similarities. He's way more similar, as, at least aesthetics-wise. You know, the way Safin ground strokes are, were constructed, much more than Hachinov. I don't know why Hachinov gets a Safin comparison. His forehand is like so different than Marat. So, <laughs> yeah, And then I think, true. the old, yeah, and then I Googled something. Uh, of course, uh, on ATP says he grew up idolizing Safin. I think there's an instance where I think Janko Tepsarovic, I think in a player's conversation, I interviewed him, and then he basically asked Fuchovic, oh, you play like Safin, don't you? And so Fuchovic kind of nodded. And uh, so that's where I think it's a little different than Schutler because I think Fuchovic with the Safin bottom left hand uh, I hope no coach is listening <laughs> on the backhand. I think he opens up the court offensively. I think beautifully. I think what's missing is I think uh, he doesn't have the kick of a soft serve or the velocity of a soft serve because he would get broken, you know. Because I think his serve is not a weapon. But again, you are the coach in the house, so I don't want to.
1: No, no, you're right, no. <laughs> it's like you, you make you make very valid points. You make very valid points. Yes, is he's, his uh, uh, he's, style-wise, he does. Um, there's definitely something there.
0: Yeah. So. So let's also talk about another uh, set of players here. And you already mentioned him. He's already established now in the top 100. Established, I mean, new entry. Uh, not established, but new entry is Seb Korda. And could be one of the best American players in a long time. Again, this is so early. But uh, you and a lot of others are very bullish on, on, on his on his rise. So talk talk about, you know, what you've seen so far and how impressed are you and why should others take notice?
1: Yes, uh, Sep Korda, I think, is the, the the most promising out of the, you know, the, the group of uh, up and coming Americans, so to speak. You know, I, uh, Taylor Fritz, for example, is doing well, too, and I like Taylor Fritz, too. But I, but I think Sep Korda has few things going for him that maybe not all other Americans have. And first of all, he's got very sound technique in, 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 in all uh, facets of the game. His, his base technique, his, his fundamental technique is very sound. And this is why, Saqib, you may, I mean, I don't want to speculate on what goes on in your head or in any other tennis fan's head, but this is why when watching Seb Corda, once in a while you may think, God, this guy looks just so effortless. You know, he just kind of swings at the ball, but yet the ball goes, you know, at warp speed nine, to use a Star Trek term, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but so it can go very, um, he can create, a lot of power with just his basic swing. And he's able to do that on both sides. He's got a good serve, very prone to improvement. Once again, sound technique. And, uh, and, his, and his mental uh, resolve during a match is very impressive to me at his age. And, and it, doesn't get, uh, it doesn't seem to get shaken uh, you know, from, from maybe blowing a lead or maybe getting killed for a set. Or to even against players that uh, that he's supposed to necessarily not win against, or or against players against players who are favored to beat him, and he does lose. You know the 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 first set, for example, he doesn't get. Uh, you know he he doesn't uh, veer away from his uh, from his general goal. Okay, he, in other words, he still keeps believing in the fact that he can win and this we saw this against by the way uh Fognini just a couple of days ago you know he um he, he lost the first set bad F- Fognini came out to play you know it, it, it was a good version of Fognini and sure enough he, he beat him 6-1 in the first set and then in the second set Corda hangs in there keeps keeps uh, you know keeps the uh, makes the points a little bit longer starts putting some pressure on Fognini to throw pushing him back and levels the ship, and then ends up squeaking through in the second set, six four, and then dominates the third set and wins six two. You know, for a young guy to beat an established player like that is not is not uh, is no peanuts. And the add to that his sound game. I think there's a lot of potential here. I really like Seb Corda.
0: No, and I think you said something, which at least is very relevant. And when I see a tennis player again, uh, you know, because I haven't played it. I mean, I've only played at club level without any formal training or, you know, I don't know the grip, so I'll stay in my range. And I think, yeah, you're right. Absolute fluent strokes. And, uh, you know, the ball striking you can see, and that's what I think gets you going. And that's what, again, I've talked about, uh, this with Tim Mayotte at length. I mean, he's more of a voice like on how some of the Americans are hitting their ground strokes and how their movement to the backhand has been Achilles heel. And, um, uh, and I could get into trouble. But I think Seb Code has more out of the European mold, at least in the way he hits his uh, ground strokes compared to American tennis again, you know, and pardon my ignorance, you know, but I think that's how I see it. No, no, no,
1: (laughs) no, 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 no. You no, you have a point definitely. And uh, no, no, I'll, I'll take your word over most people. No, definitely. No, but that's how I see it. And, you know, you
0: can look at from a coaching length and you can see, okay, this guy is doing this correct or this not, because, you know, you have that kind of knowledge and that kind of training, but just for what, what meets the eye, like the first time you see like, okay, there's a fluency in his movement and, you know, there's that, not that stiffness again, you know, Taylor Fritz and Tommy Paul hit a great backhand. I'm not saying, you know, that's like generalizing, but the backhand has been talked about since erotic days. Like it's just not a shot that featured in, you know, uh, the American system of tennis was about huge serves and big forehands with Corda. You don't see any of that. So,
1: I mean, even, even, let's take Francis TFO and I'm a big fan of Francis TFO too, but you know, again, in his case and in many Americans case, you still, you know, you can still say, well, okay, they need to work on this. They need to tweak this on this shot, okay? Maybe not every single ingredient is set in the fundamentals, okay? And they and they can do it. They can get better for sure. But you know, there's that uh, there's that uh, doubt on what they need to do on certain uh, you know, shots. Not so with Corda. I mean, I think Corda has all the ingredients already present in his game. You, you know, he just needs to fine tune them and marinate them and, 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 and mold, mold everything into the, into a top level player that he can be.
0: Sure. Very well said. So I want to take your opinion before we go on these couple of other young players who have, you know, who have shown a lot of promise and they've got a lot of uh, attention rightfully. So I think uh, Alcaraz and Muzeti, I, have, uh, I don't know if you want to weigh on either, if you've seen enough, if there's enough of sample size, Uh, If you can pick one, uh, you know, and want to talk about the last few minutes.
1: Sure. Uh, Out of those two players, I like, I like both. I like both, but I, I, I put Musetti a little bit ahead of uh, Alcaraz in terms of uh, potential, or, or if you're going to ask me, you know, which one do you like better? You know, uh, I'm going to take Musetti simply because of the, uh, of, of of the variety of uh, shots that he can produce. And uh, once again, that's a guy who can, uh, who can, uh, in my opinion, has the ingredients to be good on all surfaces, although he's shining more on one surface so far. But he's got the ing- ingredients to do well on all surfaces and uh, mentally mentally tough. And he shows great on-court IQ in building points, Musetti does. And uh, it, that's one thing that I personally pay attention to. Not everybody necessarily may put that at the top of their priority list when watching uh, you know, up-and-coming talents but uh, that's one of the things that i put on t- i put on top of my list you know on the, the way they make decisions during the point you know on court iq because he's not the kind of player that's going to blow you off the court necessarily within the first two or three shots of the rally sometimes he'll he'll need to build a point and boy does he have a a a large bag of uh, of, of tricks that he carries with him
0: yeah he definitely is someone you know uh We all look forward to watching how he makes his claim to the top 100. I think he's pretty close to breaking that. And uh, uh, let's wrap this up. And Mert has an interesting... uh a tidbit to share with everyone uh we all know becker and Lendl had a great rivalry um, Mert, take it further what did you discover about the two <laughs> uh, this yeah, last week
1: you know i totally forgot about this and i was looking at rackets tennis rackets uh, i i don't know how i got onto this but you know one of these things where talking like, i'm sure all of us and every listener can identify with you get on the internet with the intention to do something and then you drift off to other things okay and that's that, that's what happened i was looking at um, uh, you know, what w- the in the early 80s when all players started slowly switching from late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, switching from wood racket to graphite rackets or different types of rackets. And uh, you know, I was looking at uh, this player, that player, and then I come across this uh, this this uh, information that I that completely I, and I so forget about this that I didn't even. Realized that, uh, that, that it existed, but that uh, Boris Becker was playing with the, the, the Ivan Lendl racket in the early, you know, when he was very young. Not, that, not with his Puma racket that we're used to seeing, but uh, he was playing with this Ivan Lendl racket. The Adidas logo, right? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Adidas logo. And uh, and from there, I tried to figure out. Okay, when did Boris Becker, uh, you know, switch from this racket? I can't. I, first of all, I couldn't believe that he played with that racket. I couldn't remember it either. Although I watched him at a very young age back then, and I said, Oh my God, when did he, when did he switch to his PMO racket? How did he even play with this with his game style? How did he even play with the with with that Linda Ladidas racket, which is shocking? Okay. Looking back, and um, he apparently switched, uh, you know, somewhere between eighty four and eighty five, because he plays, you know, he won his first Wimbledon at uh, in nineteen eighty five, and in nineteen eighty four at Wimbledon he played with um, with uh, the Ivan Len- the Adidas racket, uh, and and he uh, he went to he qualified and uh, went to third round I believe second I think third round third round yeah third round where, where he was playing Bill Scanlon and he's down two sets of one and he suffers a huge injury. And, and you know, I, I, I actually remember that. I remember that vaguely, even though I didn't remember the uh, the racket. And uh, and he was carried off the court. And that, that again, you know, I'm, uh, I drifted off way. Now. now I'm looking into, you know, wow, that's a huge injury. He suffered at such a young age and that's actually a year before he won Wimbledon. You know, I'm saying to myself, right? So I said, "Well, how long did it take to you know?" Because this looks like a severe ankle injury that he suffered, and uh, you know, then we talked to uh, you and I, and uh, and you looked it up, and you said it, that he was out for four months, which I find that whole sequence quite amazing. You know, that 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 he he suffers a huge injury in the in in his ankle that takes him off the course for four months, at after Wimbledon. And then when he comes back from four months off, uh, you said that he reached the quarterfinals of the Australian Open?
0: Yeah, he played a few events. I think he came back in Barcelona, then played yeah. a few events. And then Australian Open was played, I think, uh, around the time of American Thanksgiving, late November. I yeah. think he just turned 17 and he reached his quarters. Yeah, I mean, and he and, must have and, qualified there too. I don't know if they had qualifying back then. Exactly. But, so exactly. he loses in the quarterfinals. Yeah. Yeah.
1: A... So at Wimbledon, that was a. Seventh, ma- sixth match, I believe, you know, because he qualified and he was also, by the way, he was supposed to play juniors at Wimbledon that year also and and didn't because he did well in the uh, in the in the man's row. He qualified for the main draw and went to the third round. But yeah, I mean, he goes to the quarterfinals of Australian Open shortly after coming back from his four months rehab, I guess. And then he goes on to win Wimbledon, you know, so half a year later. It's, it's quite, quite incredible. You know, already Boris Becker winning Wimbledon at that age is already an incredible story. But when you think about what he went through the year before, it makes it even more, uh, it magnifies it.
0: Yeah, that's one of my favorite topics. Maybe we should do a podcast uh, this year lead up to Wimbledon on on his achievements. So (laughs) Murd, I thank you very much. Again, this is an early morning podcast. I know you have a busy day ahead. You have to go teach classes and watch tennis. And I'll get ready for my day job here as well. So thank you everyone for listening. Uh, this was a Merch special. I enjoyed it. Hopefully you can tune in and, you know, gain some sharp insights that thank Merch you, just thank made. Thanks.